very warm welcome to the Understanding Users podcast, brought to you by Researchable UX. It's great to have you with me. I'm your host, Mike Green. I'm a freelance user research lead and digital consultant based in the UK. Over the coming weeks, I'm going to be chatting to various digital experts who I've had the pleasure of working with in recent years. They're from various disciplines, including user research, UX design, development, and product management. And they'll even be a digital business owner or two. I'll be talking to them about how they came to be in their current roles, what they've learned along the way, and what advice they may have for others getting into the field. These are intended to be relaxed, informal chats with professionals who are keen to share their experiences. So sit back and enjoy. So I thought I'd do something a little different for this episode. After two years of lockdowns and pretty much continual remote working, I actually went to a face-to-face UX event. Woohoo! Yes, I hopped in my car and I drove down to UX Camp Brighton on the south coast of the UK. It styles itself as an unconference for people interested in all areas of user experience, from interaction design to information architecture, user research to UX writing, and everything in between. It's the first time I've been to this event, and I actually really enjoyed myself. There was a great turnout and some very thought-provoking sessions and a really positive, supportive atmosphere throughout the day. Given the plethora of speakers and the variety of topics on offer, I wasn't able to attend every session. What I did do, though, was persuade five attendees, all of whom were giving talks on the day, to very kindly give me 10 minutes of their time to chat about their own careers and routes into UX, their day-to-day work, and the UX landscape as they see it. And of course, each of them played my three-card challenge to share their favorite UX tool, favorite technique, and a UX trend they see or would like to see in the future. There's a bit of background noise on the recordings, as these were recorded live on the day, wherever we could find a quiet corner. But I hope you'll forgive me, and I hope you'll agree that this only adds to the atmosphere. As you'll hear from my guests, there was palpable joy in being able to meet and attend events like this in person again, after so long being hunkered down. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. So I'm here at uh, UX Camp Brighton with my first guest, uh, Stephen, and I'll just get Stephen to introduce himself first and uh, what he does and who he works for. Hi, I'm Stephen Tomlinson. I'm an experienced design director. I work for a company called Invica, um, which is a product and service design agency. Um, and I've been in the industry for about 15 years now, coming largely from a sort of web design background, but then progressing through information architecture and into uh, research and UX. Brilliant. So is it your first time at UX Brighton, Stephen? Uh, no, it's the second time I've been before. I really love the atmosphere here. It's very convivial, very open, collaborative, and it's great for like first-time speakers as well, which I really appreciate. And you're doing a talk this afternoon, I think, is that right? I am, yes. I'm talking about data visualisation this afternoon. Can you give us a quick elevator pitch for your talk? Um, I'm going to talk about how to tell stories with data, a few different ways you can, I guess, ask questions of it, um, give a little bit of a framework around choosing the right sort of visualisation and the difference between, say, diagrams or data-driven stories or dashboards. Um, and then we're going to do a little bit of design as well. I'm going to get people to draw some data visible. Fantastic. People get down and dirty with the, the designs. Um, how? Here's a question for you to start with. How do you think UX designers can ensure they have the most impact on the products and service teams that they're working with? Uh, that's a really good question. So, well, I feel like you come at it from two angles. One is making sure that you've done the necessary research to understand your audience and their needs and understand really what, what's, what they're trying to achieve, what their motivations are and what their goals are um, and what's getting in their way um, and what success would look like for them. Um, and you can only really do that through primary research, through speaking to people, through interviews, through ethnographic research. But then it's also about marrying that up with business goals. If you solve a problem for people, um, but it has no real value in the economy to do that, or maybe you're working for a charity, but it, it doesn't help them to achieve their organisational goals, um, then it's not, it's not really gonna, it's not gonna continue, and it's not gonna be successful as a product or service. Um, so you do need to, I think, understand the value proposition of your product and service. That there's a value exchange between 
helping people to, to live a better life, to achieve their tasks, to meet their own goals and objectives, but also helping organisations to deliver products and services. And that might be about making money, that might be about getting people to donate to charities, that might be about uh, building collaborative workspaces and getting people to work together, whatever their goals and objectives are as an organisation. Right. And what would you say the characteristics are of a good UX designer? What kind of typical traits do you see in, in people you work with or people you'd like to work with? It's a very hard question to answer because I think what's so interesting about user experience design is the, the generalism of it, of the field and the fact that it's always changing and morphing um, and there's so, different, so many different ways to approach it and people from different backgrounds bring lots of different things to the discipline which I, I find fascinating. But if I was to generalise, I guess it would be like a curiosity and a passion right. to learn and find out about things. I think as a user experience designer, you have to learn about people, you have to learn about systems, you have to learn about organisations, you have to learn about domains, you have to learn about, let's say you're working in retail, you have to understand how retail works. If you're working in you know, travel, you have to understand why people go on holiday and some of the frustrations. Um, and also a sort of adaptability and a generalism is quite an ill-defined discipline and I feel like if you are interested in doing lots of different things then it's a really great job to have right right what do you you sort of touched on it in the last bit you said there what do you love about what you do what gets you up in the morning uh, well it is that kind of I feel spoiled but I get to learn about the world right um, and kind of sample it uh, and learn new things all the time about how people behave um, how organisations achieve their goals, all those sorts of things. Um, and I remember at school sitting down with a career advisor and I was doing A-levels and I was doing psychology, I was doing computing, I was doing graphics. Um, and the career advisor saying, like, these are all very different disciplines. You need to really, like, pick a direction uh, because these are all completely like ones the humanities and this is, like, a hard science. And, this is, and now I feel utterly spoiled that all of these have sort of come together. Right. Um, into into a field and yeah, that feels enormously right beneficial. So there's a sort of moral there. Some ways don't always listen to careers advisors. Yes, <laughs> yes, it's okay to like have lots of different interests. Yeah, and and conversely, what frustrates you about what you do? What frustrates me, if anything? I think sometimes you don't always. I work in an agency, so you don't always get to see things build a single thing. Right. Agencies tend to favour more generalism, shorter engagements, engagements rather. Um, whereas if you're working maybe client side or within an organisation, you might be working on projects for a lot longer, for multiple years, to see a product or service through to fruition. Um, but you might be more specialised. You might be dealing more with, um, you know, some of the finer details, and so. I feel like working in agency, sometimes you get frustrated that you don't get to see things through, but then, you know, there's some benefits to that as well. Right, right. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Last thing I'd like you to do is what I call my three-car challenge, and I do this with all my podcast guests. So I've got three cards here, and on the back of each, I've written either tool, technique, or trend. And what I'd like you to do, so you can see there's a ace of hearts, there's a jack of spades, and a queen of diamonds, and just pick one at a time, and then tell me what your favourite UX tool is, your favourite technique, and a trend you see that either that maybe you like, maybe you don't like, maybe that frustrates you, anything like that. So go ahead and pick. That's it. Turn it over. Technique. So tell me about a UX technique that you, you favour or you like or you think is particularly powerful or valuable. I feel like doing a design studio, so, you know, a, a workshop that has both a generative ideation kind of phase to it, get people sketching, get people coming with ideas, getting people to do that, but also brings that to a close, so you do some prioritisation, you do some identifying the ideas that people are most excited about, is a really good kind of way to work with teams, and it doesn't always need to be just like interfaces or things that you're actually designing, you can get people to design a vision, you can get people to design the box of something that they're trying to sell. So you can get people to design all sorts of things and it enables people to think about you know, business problems or user needs in very different ways. Right, thank you. Right, two more. Tool. What's your go-to tool, your favorite tool? Well, I, even before the uh, 
lockdown and the, and the coronavirus pandemic, I was really enjoying a lot of the sort of whiteboarding tools like Miro and Mule, just for the ability to run workshops remotely and work with people all over the world. Um, and I remember there was a famous interface kind of theorist, um, Jeff Raskin, wanted to build this thing called Zoom World. He had this idea of this like infinite 2D canvas was the ultimate kind of like model for a computer, right. rather than all these like files and folders and this kind of hierarchical system of finding information. He, he had this idea of just sort of moving around this infinite canvas and zooming in and out of it. Um, it never really happened, um, but now it feels like it has sort of happened. Right. Uh, with those sorts of tools and in particular I, I love working with Figma and FigJam um, right. and working between the two it's really easy to switch from whiteboarding to design and vice versa right interesting yeah definitely Miro has become a, a very important tool of choice hasn't it during the pandemic um, last one Queen of Diamonds is a trend so tell me about a trend you see in UX maybe you like maybe you don't like maybe you'd like to see I feel like a big trend that maybe it's not so much in UX, but in products and service design is around the role of automation um, and sort of tangentially related to this is things like machine learning and AI models um, and trying to find the overlap between those and the role of us as humans to continue to do the work. Um, and often it's not easy to kind of build like a connection between those two because machine learning models are by nature hard to understand right. and you can't pick them apart and understand necessarily how they come to the conclusions they always have. They can be a bit of a black box. Um, and so it's quite hard to have people kind of working in environment, information environment, where they may be doing some forecasting and modeling in spreadsheets, but they're also using data science and trying to figure out how those two things connect. Um, and that's true even of automation in um, a more sort of robotics sense. Right. Um, it presents a lot of challenges for us to ensure that we still design good jobs for people, that you know that your work is still fulfilling and stuff, um, but we, as ever, take advantage of technology and allow it to move the field. Right. That's everything I wanted to cover with you. Do you have any other insights or wisdom that you'd like to share before I let you go and do your talk? I'd like to say, if you are thinking of doing a talk or running a workshop, then come to uh, UX Camp Brighton whenever you can because it's a really great conference to try that out uh, and meet a lot of really interesting practitioners brilliant thanks so much for your time Stephen really appreciate it so my next guest was Laura and as you'll find out a bit more in a minute I was particularly interested to talk to Laura because of her experience working in a large public sector organization Laura if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do I can where you come from. I can so um, I'm the head of design at HM Land Registry so I work in central government and we're we're the place you come to to register your land and property interests um, it's a huge organization um, and in the design team there the design practice we call it we've got content designers interaction designers accessibility specialists and service designers so it's a uh, it's it's quite a big team as far as design teams go it's not the biggest one in government but it is it is growing and it's a, a great practice really vibrant really um, yeah, enthusiastic designers we have there. And is it your first time at UX Brighton? It isn't, no, not at all. Oh. Um, I've been a few times before the pandemic, maybe something like three times, I think it was, um, and spoke every time, been a, a presenter, and just love it. It's such a good supportive atmosphere. Everyone's really good, really um, uh, supportive and, and enthusiastic, you know, in whatever session you're doing. And I just love it, I love it. It's one of the best conferences in the UK, it really is, even though it's like a smaller unconference. Yeah. Brilliant. And what was your talk about today? My talk was called, uh, this is testing me now, at the table or on the menu. And that was basically alluding to this saying that we have where, uh, do you have a seat at the table? You know, designers often don't have that seat, that buy-in from stakeholders. And my talk was basically all about changing the culture to um, get that buy-in. And what we can do as designers, because I I mean, I had this controversial point in my talk where I was saying some of it's us, you know, some of it's the way that we respond to the way we're treated. And actually, we can design that too. We can design that communication. We can design the way we work and the ways of working with other people to build culture change to get design buy-in. 
Interesting. And what about you and your career path? How did you get to where you are now? My, mine is, to digital. <laughs> it's an interesting one. So I started off as a web developer. I think it's actually quite a common one, actually. So I, I studied computer science. I was a real uh, techie. I, I loved anything as a kid that was technical. So I loved things like Lawnmower Man, the, the movie. I loved Star Wars. Anything that was, you know, had a, a ZX Spectrum. Uh, and did like basic programming on that and I, I was really into that world and I think as I got older and I got more experience and more confidence and with people um, I found that they're just so much more interesting you know computers are kind of black and white uh, people are just these you know rainbow of <laughs> colors and and different different things they get up to and it's just really interesting knowing you know why they do what they do and that's what attracted me into user-centered design and that's how I ended up where I am now um, and I'm kind of designing design at the moment there's like this meta right. dimension to my job where I'm designing a design practice and the ways we work with people so yeah that's that's it in a nutshell <laughs> and it's interesting because you're in obviously central government essentially kind of yeah. public sector and I've been contracting the public sector for about six years myself yeah. and one of the things I love is the stress importance placed on user centricity and, yes. and, and the, yeah. the design system and the GDS standards yeah. Yeah. and it's something that's not always the case but it's, it's really nice not always but yeah in, in some ways it's like the public sector's more mature in that respect because it is about the importance of humans and can they use that service they're critical services many of them you know the, you know people getting their pensions and you know um, registering someone's death for example you know they're, they're really important critical services and they have to work um, they support the economy they support yeah. everything like that so in a way it can be more mature and sometimes in a private private sector organisation, not all, I don't want to tar everyone with the same brush, it can be um, a bit more, we are customer centric yeah. and, you know, in inverted commas, but what does that actually mean? It, it makes a good sales pitch, a good strategy, but it doesn't actually get implemented anywhere and there's a lot of barriers. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So how can um, UX teams then ensure they have the biggest impact, both on the user uh, but also on the clients or the, the internal sort of stakeholders. Yeah, I, well, if I knew that, I might be a millionaire, I think, but <laughs> I'll give it a go. Um, I think there's definitely something to, to be said for finding the right tension between delivering and getting the right user experience, the right usability for for the people, the users that you're serving, because you can't just hang on to everything forever. Yeah. You have to deliver something eventually to give value and to show that you, you are credible in giving value. But you also have to, um, you know, design something right. And you have to, I think that's the biggest thing, is just the relationships you have to concentrate on to do that, you know, to, to build that credibility and trust are so important. They yeah. really are. Um, yeah, I hope that answers the question. It does. <laughs> so, so following on from that, what characteristics make a good uh, designer, do you think? Uh, curiosity I think so someone's curious about other people you know not just about design work and solving the problem you do have to fall in love with the problem you know it sounds like a bit of a trope but you really do um, to be passionate about it to be curious about it Um, yeah asking good questions I think if you can question and also if you can listen so they're all soft skills I think all these core skills are like soft skills that you can you know not everyone's born with them you you have to work at them you know there's something you have to learn and, and yeah get experience in I think so what do you love about what you do what, what gets you up in the morning about user I tell you what there's a several things actually it's it's purposeful work so it feels like we benefit the economy we benefit society yeah um, which I think is good the community I work with is a fantastic one and I love bringing people together a bit like UX Camp Brighton actually I, I, I think that's why it's my favorite conference because it is like a huge community and I look forward to seeing certain people every year, it's great. And that's the same, we've got the same sort of community where I work, so that's, yeah, Yeah. probably the two big things. And what frustrates you about this world or the world you work in? The world I work in, as as a design, uh, yeah, as a theme on design, I I probably have a few things. (laughs) But as a discipline, let's say, what's frustrating about you? I suppose that's what I'm trying to hit upon, yeah, as a discipline is that it's not really regulated. You know, we don't have that understanding of, you know, what we do. um, And it is just always building maturity is the biggest thing. You can't just go in and do your job. There's always like a load of invisible stuff to do around it. So yeah, Yeah. I think that's the main thing that is quite a frustration. Yeah, and and funding. Always, (laughs) always. Getting funding for design work. All right, last thing. I've done this with everybody. Three cards. There's a word on the back of each. If you could just take a card. I'm going to go for that one. And on the back, 
the word tool. So can you tell me your favourite or prefer, preferred, shall we say, design tool? Well, do you know what? So I, because I'm not as an individual contributor, as, as a head of design, my tool is talking to people. Right. So that's a bit of a cop out. If it was no, to be, if it was to be an actual tool, I, I use Asana a lot because right. they are, they keep my brain in check, basically. Everything I do goes in there. Right. And I organise it all in a timeline. I can see, you know, what projects we're doing, who's working on what you know, what I've got to do next. So, yeah, I, I don't use... I do use design tools, but they're not my day job. Right. So, yeah, right. I'd say Asana is a good one. Asana. And talking. <laughs> Go on and choose another card. Another one. Okay. Uh, trend. Tell me about a design trend, let's say, that um, you see or you'd like to see. Maybe you like, you don't like anything yeah. at all. Yeah, so I... I it's, it shouldn't be a trend. It is a trend at the moment because it's uh, so something like accessibility. I would right. say is a trend right now, and it's a good trend. It's people are picking it up more. Um, I hate the word. It shouldn't really be a trend. It's it just should happen. You yeah. know, it's the right thing to do, and especially in the public sector, it's becoming law. So, yeah. or it already is law. So, I think anything to do with that. And I mentioned it in my talk about design justice, which is um, a really interesting thing about like who gets to do design, mm. who are we excluding, who are we including, you know, where, where's the, um, the bias towards who gets to do design, who we're designing for, all that. So I, th I think anything to do with accessibility and design justice is, is really interesting right mm. now. Yeah. Absolutely. Right, and the last one. <laughs> Another T. Technique. Oh, yes, lots of T's. So um, a, a technique, again, you say you're, you're sort of perhaps slightly removed from the day-to-day -day work, mm, but, yeah. but maybe thinking back, a, a, te a technique that you've used, that you've seen used, that you thought was particularly noteworthy, shall we say? So I think this is going way back now when um, doing, doing user research interviews, um, you know, um, putting together discussion guides, talking to people to do the research. One that was really interesting was um, doing paired research Right. So um, I think I'd worked on a project in the past with someone where they'd been doing uh, holidays or something like that. And they got, rather than just speaking to someone who was booking a holiday, maybe like the, the wife, they got the wife and the husband in. Right. And then actually just listening to the interplay between the two told you so much more than you could have ever got out of just asking them direct questions to right. one person. You found out a lot about who made decisions, right. you know, their their experiences in the past or do you remember when we went on that last last holiday or who forgot to book this you know right. so that that is a really good technique for um, user researchers or design researchers is yeah try and get a couple of people in that yeah, interview like that. <laughs> depending on the topic yeah <laughs> and all sorts of kind of unspoken things will come out probably body from, language from, yeah, but, yeah, yeah very revealing particularly with couples i'm sure <laughs> couples oh yeah <laughs> that's great that's been really great thank you so much do you have any other last tidbits or pearls of wisdom to share oh definitely come to ux camp brighton again because it is it's just so fantastic yeah brilliant thanks so much for your time <laughs> Thank Laura. You. really thanks appreciate for having it. me so then i spoke to chris now chris is an agency founder who's come on quite an interesting journey and he gave a very uh, insightful talk on the business of ux and selling ux in particular to uh, clients um so i wanted to have a good chat with him if I could just get you to introduce yourself first, Chris, who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, my name is Chris Myhill, and I run a digital agency called Pixel Bridge. We're based in London and Exeter. And tell me a little bit about your journey into digital and UX. How did you get to where you are now? Gosh, um, so I studied computer science at university. So primarily I trained as a developer, um, doing much more kind of coding orientated work and learned really quickly that I am a rubbish developer, <laughs> cannot code to save my life. What I did find was that I really enjoyed making stuff that people could play around with and seeing kind of how that went down with them. Right. So um, I quickly gravitated towards prototyping and kind of doing almost deliberately rubbish code with the idea of putting together nice prototypes. Right. And then through that, I kind of started getting exposed to um, at the time human computer interaction or HCI, which was very much about um, how people interact with the products that we build, which then led me towards um, you know usability and UX and and the idea of um, yeah of, of making products for people. Right. And what is it that you what do you love about UX? Um, what makes you get up in the morning? I really enjoy 
seeing the impact of something that we have a hand in creating and learning how what we do can have a real benefit both on the people using our products but also on the organisations who are funding them. Right, right. And conversely, what frustrates you about what, what you do, what we do as a discipline? Ah, uh, man. Um, I guess, like, kind of like the, the, the talk earlier, just justifying cost. Right. A lot of time is spent... Um, <laughs> Running a business, I've, I've kind of had a newfound appreciation for how much work goes into being able to do work. Right. You know, if we could just get our heads down and do really awesome stuff that had an impact all the time, life would be such a good place. But um, a lot of investment in both time and money goes into paving the way to be able to do work, whether that is, um, you know, trying to get yourself into a good job or if it's um, trying to convince someone in the organization that the job is worth doing right all of those things um, take a lot of time and a lot of nurturing right and in your talk earlier you talked a little bit about kind of convincing clients stakeholders of the value of UX just just summarize it a little bit for us kind of what you were what you were saying yeah totally so the the talk was mostly about making a business case for UX and some things that I've learned around how to position the value of what we do in our industry so that is both value from a kind of money point of view. Um, you know, the, the work that we do, if we do it well, right. can help the organization make more money, but it also delivers a lot of value from, you know, putting them ahead of their competitors and um, brand loyalty and shareability and all of these things. Um, but the, uh, yeah, the, the main part of the talk was really just to um, try and convince everyone that Although it's not the most glamorous part of the job, UX is the intersection of um, user needs, technology, and business goals. And quite often business goals end up being the ugly stepchild of the Trinity. Right. Um, so um, you know, let's put a bit more emphasis on that and really try and make sure that the work we're doing delivers against business objectives. Right. And with a user-centric hat on, how can UXers ensure that what they're building is delivering the most value and kind of meeting user needs and not just client needs. Yeah, totally. I think ideally they kind of come part and parcel. Right. You know, most of the time if you're providing the user with a very lovely experience that they want to come back and use, that does deliver value to the organization. Right. I think more often than not, it's a case of framing it. Right. So rather than trying to be, um, you know, in, like, I think designers really enjoy being really altruistic and like, you know, really thinking about how we can make people feel great and that's lovely and I'm totally on board with yeah, it. Yeah, but yeah. sometimes we also need to like flip the script on that and talk to businesses around how those same things can deliver real value to the organization. Right. And and your agency is Pixel Fridge, is that right? Yeah, that's right. How old is it? Uh, we're three years old. Three years old. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit about kind of the lessons you've learned and, and, and uh, you know, the last three years of, of Pixel Fridge. Yeah, starting an agency right before a <laughs> pandemic, it was really super timing. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's been great, really. Um, we've, um, so we started with three of us, so myself, Nick and Tom. Um, we're quite lucky because I, um, we, we've all worked together for a long time, right. um, and the three of us at previous agencies all had it headed up our respective disciplines. Right. So I was head of UX, Tom was head of development, and Nick was head of client services. So between us, we kind of did all the different pieces in order to deliver a digital product. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, we've just kind of grown out from that, really. Right. What advice would you give to someone thinking of starting their own agency? Um, I, f uh, I think the starting an agency... Um, be a nice, it sounds cliche, but be a nice person and just try and um, make a lot of friends. Like there is so much value in having a network and knowing lots of people who can help you out or put you in contact with someone who needs help. Right. Um, yeah, the, the, the big thing that um, has allowed us to survive and, and actually thrive in the last few years has been our network and has been the awesome people that we've kind of met and, and known along the way. Right. And, um, you know, knowing people who are great at what they do yeah. is just really valuable. Yeah. And in terms of um, advice and tips for someone wanting to get into UX as a discipline, maybe at a sort of lower level, mm. what advice would you give to somebody? Um, I think practice makes perfect. I think there's, um, there's a lot of theory to UX and it can be quite easy to get bogged down in the kind of academic side of things. Right. In fact, um, 
uh, you know, I'm aware of like how many like courses there are and how many learning tracks you can go on, and all that stuff's really good, but it just can't replace um, actual experience. And I think I've learned more. It kind of go, you know, going back. I, sound like a broken record with it but going back to like you know meeting business objectives yeah. it's one of those things that's so important to our craft you know working with clients um, understanding that you are providing a service to someone who is paying for the service like those sorts of things can't really be taught yeah. you kind of have to work at um, you have to work at um, uh like real, you know, real projects that have real business objectives, that have real goals that you can try and meet. Right. So, um, if you can find a mentor, right, that's a really good place to start. Um, but also, if you can find someone um, who will give you a project, even if it's an unpaid project, like right. you know, unpaid work isn't great. But then again, you know, learning isn't academic learning isn't paid either. Um, so you know, try and work for a charity. Right. Find. Um, someone who's doing social good in your community who right. could benefit from a website or an app or even just some some design thinking and try and do some work for those for them and kind of taking into account their organization what it needs you'll learn so much from right yeah from that so instead of rolling your sleeves up and getting down and dirty in the real world and yeah i yeah. think so yeah i think so yeah Brilliant. All right, last thing before I let you go. Uh, I've got three cards here, and on the back of these three cards, I've written the word tool, trend, or technique. And uh, I'm going to get you to pick one. So we've got the Ace of Hearts, the Queen of Diamonds, and the Jack of Spades. Um, so if you could just pick the first one. It's got to be Queen, hasn't it? It's got to be Lizzie. And then on the back, you've chosen, first of all, trend. trend. So a UX trend, be it one you like or dislike, something that you see, maybe something you'd like to see. Gosh. Um, from your work. Your work. Uh, that's a tricky one. Um, I can tell you a, um, a trend, maybe this is more personal than anything else. Right. But um, we've been really focused on um, mobile-first design for a long time, right? right? So we've almost been kind of squashing our designs down to mobile, really thinking on like the constraints of a small screen, and that is, of course, really important. Um, something that we're seeing more of is actually starting to become about bigger screens, right? Um, with um, things like um, you know tethering right. and um, uh, like larger monitors and it being more practical to engage with websites and apps on larger screens too. Right. Um, designing for Excel screens has actually become a bit of a consideration. It's right. been something that we've had to in, uh, introduce to our workflow in the last couple of years. Um, before we would always work up from a um, mobile design yep. up to kind of like a large desktop design. Whereas now we're having to think about how that same experience scales to like a 4K right. TV because more people are accessing the web and accessing um, digital on huge devices like televisions or build or like um, you know in the presentation room we were just in like screencasting up to a 4K TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, just a, another thing that um, we're starting to think more about. Right. Interesting. And that's a sort of growing trend that you see. Uh, it's certainly a trend in what our clients are interested in and what they're asking for. Right, right. Yeah. Go on then, choose another card. Go on then. Tool. Tell me about your favourite UX tool, the one that's your kind of tool of choice. Um, well, Figma is just awesome. Right. Like that's, that probably won't be a surprising one. I think every designer here is probably using it. But in terms of like, you know, asynchronous design in the clouds, like we're a team of multiple designers. Yep. And quite often we're working on the same projects. And I cannot even describe to you the faff having to like send a sketch file yeah. around and keep track of versioning and even with like cloud sync it was just impossible um, having design tools like figma is um, so cool for working collaboratively especially now that we're kind of doing so much work remotely right um, in terms of tools that um, we're still trying to get to grips with, I think um, animation prototyping right. is a big one. Right. So there are we're messing around with things like Principle and um, uh, I think Principle's the main one. There's uh, is it Flinto is another right. one that yep. we've kind of played, we've experimented with. Um, but these are tools for kind of looking at micro interactions. So right. you know, if I'm as a user go into hover over a button, click on the button you know, 
can we introduce some delight, some joy, some right. meaning in like what happens when I click on it visually? Um, and that is becoming a really important part of the design work that we do. Right. Um, so yeah, animation prototyping is um, where we're where we're setting our sights on next. Great stuff. And the last one, uh, Jack of Spades, is a technique. technique. So what's your favoured UX technique? Something that you typically go to. Um, how specific are we talking? Up to you. Um, just talking like silliness. Um, my, one of my favourite UX techniques is um, the five whys. Right. Or the, the uh, otherwise known as the annoying toddler technique. <laughs> uh, and the five whys are why, 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 and why. Yeah. And it's something that we use over and over again in interviews because quite often when you're interviewing either a client stakeholder or a user, they probably won't give you what you need the first time you ask. Yeah. Um, and it's not until that you keep asking them the question, why do you do this? Why do you do this? Oh, that's interesting. Why is that? Yeah. That they start to really drill into the context and like the drivers behind why things exist. Yes. Um, so yeah, I'd say that's probably my favorite Brilliant. technique as a designer. Brilliant. Yeah, no, I'm familiar with that. That's a good one. Um, before I let you go, any last comments, thoughts, insights you'd like to share? Um, just how happy I am to be back doing this sort of thing, to be honest. It's nice to see everyone together in person and not sat in front of a Zoom call. Yeah. As, as much as uh, I'm a technologist, I really like to get a break from technology. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. even when we're talking about it, it's nice to do that with human voices. In person, yeah. <laughs> and UX is a people, people and tech business, isn't it, really? So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, D. Chris. Really appreciate your time. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. Then I talked to Alex. Alex is a UX director, and he'd given a talk about the role of flexible user interfaces in complex applications, um, which had been well worth going to. So I wanted to have a chat with him. So my next guest is Alex. Uh, Alex, if I could just get you to introduce yourself and your role and who you work for. Yeah, sure. So I'm Alex Boxavanis. I uh, head up the experience design team at Reason. We're a small agency up in London. Uh, great. And is it your first time at uh, UX Brighton? It's my second time, I think, actually, if I remember correctly. Like, the last time was obviously a couple of years ago before the world went a bit sideways. That's right. That's yeah. right. And, uh, and I went to your talk earlier, and it's really interesting. Would mm -hmm. you mind just giving a kind of quick summary of what you were talking about? Yeah, sure. So over the last couple of years, I've worked a lot with people who use enterprise systems or design enterprise systems. And a lot of those systems you find end up being very customizable or needed to be customizable. Uh, although it's not really obvious all the time when and how and why. And sometimes you have to get called upon to justify, especially to an engineering team, you know, why do you have to make things more complex? I thought we were trying to like replace Excel. Right. So my talk was about, well, the, the rules around it or my experience. How do you... When should you do it? Why should you do it? And how to do it in a in a good way? Because it's not always a great solution. Absolutely, absolutely. And tell me about your route into user experience and, and how you got to where you are now. My, my route into user experience is actually through engineering. So I, I grew up in an engineering family. Uh, my dad was an electronics engineer. So I, what I started was more around uh, electrical and computer engineering. I started building some stuff, building my own software. I didn't quite practice it a lot professionally, but then I, it turns out that as I started building certain things, people weren't quite using it exactly the way I expected. And I'm like, wait a minute, there must be something there. There must be a way that I can convince those people to, to use my software the way I liked it, the way I designed it. Right. And then I like realized that design itself is a much kind of wider discipline. I, I came to London, uh, studied human-computer interaction. Right. Uh, which is a very kind of, I guess, formal way of learning about user experience and ergonomics and fun things like that. And yes, yeah, since then I kind of very quickly got into consulting because I like lots of interesting problems being thrown right. at me. Right. And, and what in particular do you love about what you do? You mentioned kind of different problems. Is there any specific thing that you, you, you love doing? Well, I guess as an engineer or somebody with an engineering heritage, obviously I don't get to make that many things nowadays. I have lots of side projects, but I still like to have a peek behind the scenes on how like certain businesses work. So, you know, I work right now with a massive like kind of multinational clothing manufacturer and you, you know, you get to see anything from how jeans are being made all the way to how they're being shipped all around the world and forecasted where they need to go and put on the, on the shelves of a store. And I've done the same thing, you know, I've worked with airlines, I've worked with airports, I've worked with, I think the 
strangers to sign was like going down to some oil company in Saudi Arabia and you, you know you get to peak probably more than your average person on how the world works right right and, and conversely I've been asking other guests what frustrates you about what you do oh, what are the God. challenges you yeah. kind of face day to day it's very hard for people to frustrate me I would say I mean the, the, the one thing that sometimes frustrates me uh, I get really really annoyed my colleagues know this is if this very basic technology doesn't work and I like I walk into a meeting room and I can't just figure out how to like, you know, log into some teleconferencing system or plug my laptop in and present something. Then I get very visibly annoyed because I know it could work. I know, you know, there is ways to make it work. I'm just, why have we not found those ways? Um, The other thing that I guess more in a kind of the actual, my actual job is I get a bit, not so frustrated, I get maybe like annoyed or disappointed when I haven't yet found a way to explain the value to people and It turns out that like, you know, somebody has decided, oh, we don't really need designers on this project. We can just sketch something and get the engineering team to build it. And it's not that they, you know, necessarily always come from a, from a bad place. I, I see this as a, as a challenge. I mean, how could I explain to them better what, exam, what, what value I'm bringing there? Right, right. And how, in your view, can UX teams, uh, experienced design teams, ensure that they have the biggest impact, both for the user and for the, for the business or the client? I feel like where a lot of designers need to get slightly better at, it's not that they don't care, it's just understanding a little bit about the business that they work for, whether it's their client as a consultancy, yeah. or whether it's the business that they're directly employed by. And I used to teach a course in design leadership and one of the kind of activities that I got people is like, here, here's a company's like annual accounts. Here's the kind of the annual report. Go and take a look and see how do these people make money? How do they lose money? You know, who's on their board? What are the different perspectives? What do they publicly care about enough to shout in the wider world? And I like to kind of do that digging around and teach people to do this because this is where you learn, you find more ways into making that impact. Right. Interesting. So what characteristics do you think make good experienced designers? What sort of personal attributes do people need to be, to be good in that role? I think there's two things. I'm going to say curiosity is one because I'm you know, probably one of the most curious people and I don't think you can do this job unless you're not curious. You have to ask enough questions and you have to like never be bored to ask enough questions. Um, and I guess going with like never be born, I think there is an element of like tenacity. I mean, you know, even though I've been doing that job for well, 15 years now, I still have to like remind myself that change isn't automatic, isn't always quick. Sometimes you might be right right now, but the results of you being right are only going to be seen in a couple of years later. So yeah, it's just you have to be a little bit patient and tenacious. Right, right. And, and what advice would you give to somebody who wanted to get into experience design? Oof. I think like first of all I would just say make sure you're doing this for the right reasons right when I interview especially people who like have come in and really want to do that job I, I'm always kind of mindful of or are, are you doing this because you just genuinely care about this job or because sometimes there is a there's lots of like boot comes there's a lot of things you know sometimes people do see this as like hey it's a new popular thing and everyone can go and design a cool app Right. So first of all, like, are you doing it for the right reasons? And then I guess like one interesting kind of advice that I give to people, especially those who like switch careers is to find a way, you know, as a hiring manager, like to convince me how your previous career is linked to what you mm. do. And I've, I'm really happy that I've hired over the years, like people who have come from anything to like, you know, from music, filmmaking, all sorts of other types of design and engineering and psychology. So I would also give people advice that the, you know, the only, the, the entry isn't just to like start studying this from day one. You could make your way into user experience and we need your perspectives from other parts of the world. Right, right. No, very, very, yeah, absolutely true. Right, the last thing I want to get you to do is what I call my three card challenge. Right, so I've okay. got three playing cards here, Queen of Diamonds, Ace of Hearts and the Jack of Spades. And I've written on the back of each of them either the word trend, tool, or technique. So if I can get you to choose one, please. I'll choose the ace. And just tell me what's on the back. Tool. So tell me about your favored UX tool or favorite tool or the tool that you kind of typically go to when you're working. Does it need to be just one? (laughs) No, it can be more than one. I mean, I... Tell me about your tools then. 
it's, a, it's actually a fun question for me because I like tools, I like building tools for people and I like kind of exploring tools. My, my kind of number one principle that I apply to my team is like, you can use whatever tool you like as long as you convince me that it's helpful. Yeah. Tons of people are using Figma and are having a lot of fun on this. Yeah. And I think it's definitely changed the collaboration element of design. But one that I've tried to use more recently that is more around uh, research is a tool called Dovetail. Right. And it's really changed how quickly we could cut through some of the groundwork of like uploading the videos, transcribing them, analyzing them, and getting much more quickly to a conclusion about what were the key points in an interview, what do we want to take away from that. Right. Uh, so that's more a user research tool. Yeah, that's more of a user research tool. Uh, but it's very good at like, communicating your kind of decisions because, you know, especially if you keep going back to the same people, to the same topic, you can very nicely like tag all of that and build almost like a library of understanding that then, you know, you onboard a new member of the team, you get a new designer, they could go and troll through what everybody else has said about the product or about the topic. Right. Interesting. Two more. Two more. Choose okay. the next one. It's another one. So this is trend. Ted, tell me about a, a trend in UX oh. that you like or don't like or that you see or you wish was a trend. God, I like that's probably the worst about this whole like trend things because I don't. I'm not sure I believe very much in trends. I I always tell people, and actually somebody reminded me that that my kind of. Last talk at um, at UX Camp Brighton two years ago was about that topic. Like, just take a critical attitude to any kind of trend. Like, you know, I would very much wish that all of this talk, for example, about making everything on the blockchain and NFCs would go away. But actually, maybe I'm wrong. I would wish that somebody kind of takes a good critical view and finds a good use for that technology. Um, So that's kind of like a bit like how I see trends. I don't, I don't tend to jump on them though. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. Okay, and the last one is Jack of Spades, which is technique. technique. So, so tell me about a UX technique that you use or your team uses that you like or is particularly one that you prefer. Hmm, that's cool. There's a kind of probably like do loads of things that I don't even know if that's a, a real like technique. Um, I was giving some advice to somebody yesterday about like prioritization. One of the things that I kind of, maybe it exists as a name technique, but I, I named it like kind of value mapping right. or value chain mapping. And that applies to all sorts of things where you have a lot of complexity and a lot of things that you need to prioritize. And the, the, the question actually that came was, how do I prioritize between all sorts of different users? Everybody's coming and asking me, do this thing for this type of user and then do something else for another users. And I was like, quite often there is a value chain. Some person does X and then hands it off to somebody else and then hands it off to somebody else. And if you manage to map this, right. then you see where you need to start first because you know, if user A was supposed to have done something for user B to get value, if you're trying to focus on user B of much further down the chain without having completed, without having focused enough on what the first user needed, then you're missing something out. You know, sometimes there's lots of shiny things that you can do in lots of areas, but unless you look for the value, where is it actually coming from? Where is the source? Where, where does it all start? You know, you might be missing a trick. Right, absolutely. And last thing, then I'll let you go. Any final kind of insight or golden nugget that you'd like to share? Oh, insight or golden nugget? I don't know, like, um, I guess on a personal level, it's just super exciting to be here and just be around people and you know, I, I don't think we'll ever, as an industry, go back to doing everything face-to-face again. I think the flexibility that's come over the last couple of years has been amazing. And myself and a lot of my team have managed to like make good use of it, actually. You know, go and work from interesting places around the world, see our family more. Um, but also, I think a lot of us have missed the face-to-face contact. So I'm good to see this coming back. And I'm, I'm hoping people will find, you know, like with anything else, good uses for it. Like, not just be in the office just so we can be in the office but be in the office because we can make something meaningful or be with a client or be with another person face to face because we've genuinely believed that this is a good opportunity a good reason to do it yeah and that ridiculous hybrid situation where you end up going into the office sometimes is still sitting on zoom or teams because yeah. some of the teams are remote and you're thinking why on earth am i doing this yeah i think this you know to some extent this will always happen but 
you know, one of the things that I'm kind of also trying to work is like, because we have remote teams, we have hybrid teams, we have hired in, in my company people that might be as far as Copenhagen or even India. Mm. And how do you deal with some of those things like recognition, like taking somebody out for a drink or, or coffee? How do you do some of those things remotely? And it's forced me a lot to like think about well, what is the outcome when I get somebody out for a coffee? You know, okay, yeah, it's fine to hang out with them with a coffee, but what do I get? Mm. What do they get? And maybe as a designer, I can think of a different solution to get to the same outcome. So I think there's a lot of that stuff. You know, I see a lot of um, things in the papers, which is very kind of binary, very kind of naive views of that situation. Like, oh, we'll never get back to the office or oh, we must all eventually return to the office. And... I think there's a better middle ground and it's up to us designers to figure it out. Yeah, absolutely. On that inspiring note, um, just like to say thank you very much, Felix, for your time. Really appreciate it. It's good. Thanks a lot for having me. And last but by no means least was Al Power, Al's creative director uh, and uh, product designer uh, at an agency on the South Coast. So my next guest is Al. Uh, Al, if I could just get you to introduce yourself, tell me a little bit about what you do and where you work and who you are. Hi there, Mike. Um, I'm Al Power, uh, and I'm a creative director and lead designer for an agency in Brighton called DabApps. Uh, and we mainly build uh, business systems of a wide variety for all kinds of customers, often with kind of quite complex needs. And I run a small team of designers, and we're often sort of thrown in, into the deep end, either improving an existing application or building something completely new, uh, having to understand requirements, understand our users, um, often in a completely different space, each project. So right. it's uh, fun and challenging. Absolutely, I can imagine. And tell me about your journey into UX and digital. How did you get to where you are now? So it's a really, it's an interesting one. I used to be a developer, so I actually started oh, okay. out at the, right. the very lower end, back right. end, right. and gradually worked my way to the front end. And I've always been interested uh, in in the user and how they use things and why why and how they do certain things. I started out when UX wasn't really a thing, um, when sort of information, information architecture maybe was the thing people were thinking about, um, and uh, people were starting, starting to be interested in how people use computers, I think it was called human-computer interaction, it was very much about the physical rather than the, the, the usability or the user experience. And uh, I co-founded a, a, a UX group in Oxford called UX Oxford, right. uh, which I ran for a few years. Um, and that really got me into UX and then design. And then I kind of retrained as a designer. And here I am now uh, working as a, as a UI and UX designer. Right. So, yeah. Interesting. And is it your first time at UX Brighton? It isn't. It's my fourth time. And I've spoken twice before. And it's such a welcoming environment. I'd highly recommend anyone who's interested in having a go at public speaking come to uh, one of these UX events. They're usually self-organized, very friendly crowd, and everyone is super supportive of anyone, especially first-time speakers. So I'd highly recommend it. Brilliant. And what was your talk today about? So I think you were talking first thing, weren't you? Yes. Uh, go, go back all the way to the morning. Um, my talk was about um, UI tips for success and how uh, UX designers who are maybe not familiar with user interface design or visual design can break a existing design down into their component parts and rebuild it in a better way. Right. So thinking about like uh, alignment, typography, color, um, calls to action, because often people find design as a, as a general amorphous blob to be really confusing right. and actually it doesn't have to be. So by breaking things down into a set of sort of high level principles, you can look at an existing design and say, is this aligned right? Are there too many colors? Is the layout a bit wonky? Are there clear calls to action? Right. And just by addressing each one of those things, you'll end up in a better place. Right. And thinking a step beyond that in terms of ensuring UX designers can have impact uh, on the end user, obviously, mm -hmm. critically, but also perhaps the clients and the stakeholders involved in the project. What's your, what are your thoughts on that? It's a really interesting one because often UX is very much about focusing on the user, 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 but um, the users are, um, there, there are other people involved in projects. There are um, people building the systems on the client side, there are people paying for the systems as well. Yeah. Um, so I think for me, user experience designers can really uh, get ahead in their 
or up their game or get ahead in their career by starting to understand the, the, the words these different groups of users use. So if, for example, take someone who's paying for a project, um, they want a certain outcome and being able to understand what drives them and almost doing kind of, not user testing, but a kind of profiling your uh, clients and what their needs are, as well as your users, right. you'll end up with um, a better understanding. You might be doing exactly the same thing, but being able to frame um, frame something in, in, in ways that m are meaningful to them. What do they care about? What's going to move, you know, make them look good or make their project succeed from their perspective? And you can often take the output of user testing, user research, uh, and you'd normally frame it in a certain way. Um, but you can sort of flip it on its head in, in fresh terms yep. that make more sense to sort of stakeholders or, you know, people paying the bills. And several of the talks today have been about um, the terminology that we use. Um, there were some talks about like agile frameworks and people love buzzwords. We all love buzzwords in our industry and we get we forget that not a lot of people understand them. So I think just stepping back a little bit and being able to actually explain things in normal words uh, can clear a lot of the, uh, the the clutter and the noise and the, the misunderstanding why we're doing something. Right. Why are we doing user testing? Why are we doing usability testing? Why are we interviewing our users? And I think if we can explain that in terms that actually make sense to our stakeholders, then they're much more likely to, to, to buy into it. Right. And taking into account everything you've just said, what characteristics make a good UXer, whether that be a visual a UX designer or a researcher or a service designer, what Ooh. personality traits do you need, do you think, to, to achieve some of those outcomes you just mentioned? I think being a good listener, I think um, we are often brought in as experts, so we feel like we have to have the answers and we have to be certain about things. But I think being able to say, oh, I don't quite understand that, can you explain that to me? Or can you unpack that a little bit in a conversation with either a user or a stakeholder? Um, it's amazing, it opens up. Um, people like to, 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 you know, to, to, to be clearer, to be understood. And actually, if you become a good listener and a good facilitator, rather than um, uh, someone who is, is maybe kind of saying, there's a time and a place for saying, uh, for, for being the expert and telling, people what to do or, or approaches that they should be taking but actually if you stop listen get used to awkward silences if you're in a conversation with someone there's nothing quite like just not talking for a little bit and then people will open up a bit more and tell you a little bit more than they need so for me I think um, and it's not natural I love talking but um, being able to be quiet and listen to people uh, has enriched the, the work that I've been doing right and what do you love, Al, about UX, about this, this discipline, this industry? Oh, my goodness. That's, <laughs> that's, that's a really, really tough question. Um, I like... Uh, I love the aspect of UX that brings together all the different viewpoints of everyone within uh, a project. Um, I think sometimes disciplines like, you know, user interface design or engineering or development um, they all exist in their own little silos they have their own languages but UX is, a, is, is for me is one of the one disciplines that really thinks about um, how all those different groups communicate right. um, and for me it's the thing that ties things together really nicely um, If you were to flip that on its head mm -hmm. what frustrates you about UX? Um, I think it's probably the fact that um, because people don't always understand it or understand the values, they think it's just um, something that you do or sprinkle on. I think the same applies to visual design as well. Um, often you, you hear stakeholders saying, can you make this look good? Um, or can you, can you do some UX? And I think that's as much our fault as it is theirs because they don't really understand the process, the value, the reasons for. And I think that calls back to some of the previous things we were talking about is like understanding and explaining the value of something. And I think as you get more senior in your career, it's it's easier to internalize things and you just, you know you do it for good reasons, but you can't always explain it. Yeah. I think having that beginner's mindset of, of actually asking yourself why, why do I do this each time? 
and, and, and understand that, unpack that. And then the next time you, you come to do this, you can actually explain why we're doing this to somebody and you'll find that you're much more likely to get um, buy-in. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, last thing, my three card challenge. So I've got three playing cards here. Um, Ace of Hearts, Queen of Diamonds and a Jack of Spades. And I've written a word on the back of each. And I'm going to get you, first of all, just to choose a card. I'm going to choose the Ace of Hearts. And if you could just turn it over and tell me the word on the back. Tool. So I'm going to get you just to tell me what's your favourite UX tool and why. Something that you use or your team uses on a sort of regular basis. Or... Ooh, my favourite UX tool. That's a tough one. I would say um, it's, it's not really a UX tool, but I like... Um, I like using a visual design app called Figma right. um, because it allows you to create and reuse what, what they, they call components or styles or it's all about reusability right. and I found that extremely valuable for, for creating wireframes really quickly. There are other tools out there that are purpose built for that but I found that because I um, do all my UI and visual design using this tool I've realized that I can actually also um, do kind of more UX, more high level design, zoom out a little bit, right. do, paint a 10,000 foot view right. using the same tooling. Right. Um, I, I'd also say that I've recently started a project with a client who thinks exclusively in Excel and <laughs> that's his tool of design choice and right. every time we approach a problem, his way of unpacking it is going to Excel, typing out some examples right. and, and, and sort of playing with that. And I've, I've found that actually meeting him, and for me, I never thought I'd say this, but learning how to use Excel better has actually helped me uh, communicate with him right. and, uh, and, and meet him at his, his level. So that's another flip side to tooling. Right. Um, uh, it, you know, there was talks earlier today about what are the most popular design tools, yeah. and um, <laughs> it was actually PowerPoint and Excel came out very highly because stakeholders and clients love using them. Yeah, yeah, and it's meeting them where they are, isn't it? Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And as you say, things like Figma and Sketch and all these other tools, most of them never heard of. That's yes, exactly. But I wouldn't advise actually doing any designing in Excel or PowerPoint. Absolutely not. Okay, next card. Queen of Diamonds, trend. So think about a trend in UX that uh, you like, maybe you don't like, something that focuses your mind. I guess it's less of a trend, but often UXers, especially those who do consulting, uh, often focus on deliverables and reports and things like that. And I find that they can be quite, um, uh, either people don't read them or, um, I don't know, it, it's seen as a thing you do, yeah. but there's often, there aren't really any outcomes that come from them if they're not used right. Yeah. So I would say um, focus less on uh, UX deliverables and think about outcomes instead, like what are you, what are you trying to do or change? And, and I think if you, if you can do that, then you're gonna spend more time actually affecting change or talking about people, talking to people about how you, can change things and less time writing reports that might not get read right right okay absolutely agree and last one the jack of clubs technique so ux technique again a favorite technique or something that you typically use um, in your U work a ux technique a favorite technique of mine is is probably um kind of open card sorting where you're understanding the terminology that people use within their systems. Because I work agency side, I get dropped into different clients all the time. They have their own buzzwords. They have their own ways of talking about things. And often actually doing a sort of an open card sort where you get people to write down the, the, what they call things, uh, all, the, all the, the different terminology on a table, on index cards, and then kind of rearrange them into sensible groups really helps me understand systems and how things flow and work together because it can be quite um, uh, information overload when you start a new project so actually um, doing a kind of review of all the terminology that people use for their systems what things are called 
get them to explain them to you means that you understand how their systems work and what they're for a lot better. And um, I'd say keep, keep a cheat sheet or a glossary which you can share with your team uh, you know, within a given client space so yeah. that everyone's on the same page. And the same thing works for the client. When you, you, know, you, you might talk about wireframes, you might talk about high fidelity visual designs, but often people don't know necessarily what they are. Yeah. And I've had clients who think wireframes are the designs or mm. think designs are the wireframes. So actually having a, a, a common vocabulary that you can share yeah. as a glossary with a client can be super useful. I really like that. I think, yeah, it's really important. As you say, because there are so many terms on both sides of the fence and it's yes. easy to get confused. Thank you so much, Al. Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Mike. Appreciate it. Many thanks to those of you listening to the Understanding Users podcast. And of course, many thanks as well to all of the five guests who took part in this episode. I really appreciated their time and their insights. If you all enjoyed what you heard, do please like or comment wherever you're listening and feel free to share this episode more widely. And feel free, of course, to drop me a line with any feedback via LinkedIn or on my website, researchable.uk. Links are in the show notes. Join me again next time when I'll be talking to Scott Byrne Fraser. He's co-founder and chief metaverse officer at the edtech startup Hundo. I can't wait to share the conversation he and I have with you all. Until then, stay safe and stay user-centered.